You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Greetings and welcome to Domecast, the news and observer politics podcast. I'm Don Bond here with Colin Campbell, Lucille Sherman, Danielle Battaglia, Will Doran, and Julian Shenbarrow. We're recording this on Friday, uh, July 10th, which is also the first day of the North Carolina Task Force for Racial Equity and Criminal Justice, which is something that Governor Cooper announced, I guess in the past couple of weeks in the wake of the George Floyd murder protests. And do we think it's gonna do anything? Uh, What other things can be done? Where are we on public records, on people, um, criminal justice issues like the John Neville death um, from something that happened in in jail in Forsyth recently. So, Danielle, why don't you catch people up on the situation with who John Neville is, was, and what happened to him? Sure. So, um, Dan Keene and I have been working on the story, him for a couple months now. I came into it a little later, I think in May or June. um, We had found out that the SBI was investigating of an inmate. Um, There was difference of opinions on whether it was an in-custody or out-of-custody death. And basically, um, we found out this week that five deputies or detention officers and a nurse are going to be charged with his death for um, felony involuntary manslaughter. And basically, what we found out from the autopsy this week is that he had been arrested, or actually, we knew this prior, but he had been arrested for uh, misdemeanor assault on a female. The charges were from Guilford County and were taken out by a woman directly from the magistrate. So it never went through like a law enforcement investigation. He was found in Forsyth County, taken to the Forsyth County jail. Um, He had told his cellmate that he had been partying. So um, he had done marijuana. He had been drinking. He has asthma and some sleep disorders. And basically the cellmate woke up to him on the floor basically writhing around and hit a panic button, which called in the five deputies and a nurse. And um, they ended up trying to figure out what was going on with him, but he also was kind of delirious and didn't know what was happening to him. They restrained him in a, in a position called prone restraint. And it's basically where officers take your hands, put your arms behind your back, and then raise your legs up to your wrist. And it's very controversial amongst law enforcement agencies about whether to use this or not, because it has caused suffocation of several, I don't even think several is the right word, but like many people over the years. And uh, we found out for the autopsy, he was telling them he couldn't breathe. He was asking for his mother. He was, um, he was asking for help. And they, um, I think four minutes in, I'm doing this from memory. So I think four minutes into him begging for help, he stopped moving, stopped um, talking. They tried to get his handcuffs off. Unfortunately, the handcuff key broke in his handcuff. They tried another key that wasn't getting the handcuffs off. They tried bolt cutters that wasn't getting the handcuffs off. Um, I think they had to do two different bolt cutters before they could finally get his left hand out. And that was 15 minutes into him being in prone restraint. So this is a really long time that basically in this position, your diaphragm is getting pushed into your chest and it's just making you not be able to breathe properly. And uh, they had the nurse check him and they all ended up leaving the cell. And when they got out of the cell, the nurse said, I don't think he's breathing. So they went in and it was another four minutes before they started CPR on him. And he ended up dying on his way, or not dying, sorry, his heart ended up stopping. He wasn't breathing. 
they ended up reviving him and taking him to the hospital where he um, would die two days later. He was basically in a coma the whole time. They were trying to restart his heart and get him basically alive again and on December 4th died. And so we just found out about this. I think Dan Kane had gotten a report that said there was a out of custody death back in March and was asking questions and just wasn't getting, I don't want to say we were lied to, but we weren't getting honest answers about what was happening then. And then when I found out about the SBI investigation, I want to say it was at least a month ago, it may have been longer. Um, I started digging around with Dan and, um, basically wasn't getting a whole lot of information, but it looks like from our asking questions, you started seeing some movement in the case. And then the DA ended up getting the autopsy report on July 7th, which has been the holdup for him on whether to pursue charges or not. And that basically said he died of, basically long story short, is he had a brain injury from his heart stopping from the lack of oxygen from being in prone restraint is what the autopsy said. So that's when the DA went ahead and issued the charges against the nurse from WellPath who does their medical um, assistance at the jail and then the five deputies that also responded. So there's video footage and where, where was that recorded? What, what camera so, was used for that? I hear there are various cameras. I'm assuming there's body cameras. I think there's probably security cameras too. Um, we filed a petition, I think after like weeks of not getting any answers, we filed a petition on June 26th to get that released. Uh, that was me being the news and observer has filed for it. Um, and we're supposed to have a hearing on June 15th or July 15th. Sorry, my dates are getting confused. And, uh, as of yesterday, we got a petition from the district attorney along with two defense attorneys saying that they want the hearing continued partially because the DA is on vacation, but partially also because they think that that would be too much information to give prior to a uh, trial for the defendants. So I think we could probably all agree that having video evidence of things, whether it's government recorded video, bystander video, has really just been a massive game changer in criminal justice, um, both for the victims, both for um, law enforcement themselves. And, and this isn't, of course, not a new topic, but it's, it comes up again and again. And, and footage really is what uh, determines the outcome of a lot of things, whether that outcome is something with policy or protests or... Um, so something came up with policy recently, as everybody knows, um, that Lucille has been writing about. And it ended up going through overnight with this last minute session. So I think we should talk a little bit about how uh, just the legislature pushes through things quickly, um, suddenly, um, even if they've maybe shown up before, but you don't know that. Um, so Lucille, if you can talk about when did this first show up? And we, I guess we understand it was a DHHS request and if there's a why and then kind of the fallout that that's happened since then and of course it being connected to Neville's death too. Yeah, so um, in 2019, I think it was April 2019, DHHS um, introduced this standalone bill um, that basically closed, a, it was intended to close a loophole that when law enforcement hands over death investigation records to the medical examiner, law enforcement death investigation records aren't public record, but when they left law enforcement's hands and went to the medical examiner, they became public for sort of like a brief moment. 
Um, and so DHHS was trying to close this loophole because it was creating problems um, in terms of law enforcement willingness to share records necessary for medical examiners to make a determination about a death. Um, so they filed this bill. It really did not go anywhere. Um, and then again, they filed it this year, but with a lot of other DHHS um, provisions, so technical changes to health department laws, really important stuff, honestly, that needs to happen. Um, and so then um, that bill stalled again. And at the last minute, or really the last day, so on June 24th, the last day of the session-ish was June 25th, and um, they used a bill um, that had already passed through, I don't remember which chamber, um, Senate Bill 168, to put all of those DHHS-related provisions and that law, public records provision, changed the law in a bill. Um, it made it to the House floor um, late in the evening on June 25th, and that's sort of how it got through. Those bills are so long. I think most of the bills that we saw later in the evening um, were really, really long bills. And they're right when they say, you know, they stand up and say, this is a straightforward bill, or we've seen this before, or this is a non-controversial bill. It's probably true for the most part because they sort of, I felt like it was sort of scrambling pieces of a bunch of other bills and putting it into different ones. Um, so that just makes it hard to know sort of what's coming through and what was controversial and what passed what committee and what didn't. Um, and that's sort of how this got through. And um, pretty quickly, you know, I think just given sort of the current climate and the public's thoughts about law enforcement and sort of lack of trust for law enforcement, this really sort of got more attention um, than I ever thought it would. And it's really because um, I think the public just really wants law enforcement transparency and accountability. And so the chance that, you know, that the legislature could even slightly alter the public's ability to hold law enforcement accountable or view documents um, or videos related to law enforcement deaths, I think sort of caused some public outrage. And I don't, I don't think any legislators or really the governor even wanted any part in, um, you know, being a part of that being signed into law sort of in this current climate. Where Danielle's, um, story comes in with John Neville is in theory, and I'm not 100% sure how this would work with 168, but if 168 went into law, in theory, since John Neville died in law enforcement custody or related to law enforcement custody, anything that was a part of his death investigation, so all the records, the video, the documents, um, any reports related to sort of the events that unfolded related to his death. They aren't public record, but when law enforcement passed those records to the medical examiner so they could make a determination about his death, they became public under current law. And Senate Bill 168 would have changed that. So had Danielle filed this petition for whatever she wanted related to um, John Neville's death, once SBI closed their investigation and once the medical examiner was a custodian of those records, she could, in theory, get documents and videos related to his death. But Senate Bill 168 would have changed that. Um, and then it would have gone into effect October 1st. But what I found in a lot of other cases, if 
public records law passes, and even if it doesn't go into effect months later, a lot of agencies will say, well, this is going to be private in a few months, and they'll sort of just hold your request and not answer it until then. So it could have been really bad, <laughs> um, to say the least, but it's really interesting how, you know, a lot of things that are happening right now are sort of all interconnected um, in this discussion about law enforcement and accountability. I think that was interesting for me on my story, too, is the timing of that bill was so weirdly connected to what I was doing behind the scenes to get this story because we were asking the administrative office of the courts for like emails from the DA connected to the case. We were asking for his calendar. We were asking um, the sheriff's office for different public records. So like people knew we were digging into this and Mr. Neville's death was never publicly like released to the public. That was very redundant. But um, we were, I mean, we were asking a lot of questions and I know we were making people very uncomfortable. I got a lot of feedback on that. And this got slipped in overnight about the time we really heated up the pressure to get information on Mr. Neville. I immediately started hearing rumors that it was connected to his death. And um, still to this day, not sure what happened there. And, and I can't myself connect it, but I know during the news conference, um, the family's attorney. So the family's attorney is being represented by Michael Grace out of Winston-Salem. And he said that he knew people were protesting outside the governor's office using John Neville's name, saying that these records are important to tell his story and what happened. And uh, he said he had knowledge that the governor heard about the connection. And that's one of the reasons this got vetoed. Um, so I think that's interesting. It's interesting to me that that came out in the press conference and that bluntly. And so it kind of ties in, was it trying to block what was coming out with this case? And I will say part of the reason we didn't hear, not didn't hear about his death, but didn't hear about any charges is the DA has been waiting. There's a 722 page SBI report that's been on his death since April, but they did not have the autopsy results. And it wasn't until he got that on, I think, Tuesday night that he was like, okay, I'm pressing charges. But just everything coming together is a little interesting on how that all went down. I don't think anyone has ever said, oh, wow, my public records request was filled so quickly on the same day I asked it. Um, no. So the, gover the government doesn't, you know, I, for people that don't understand why we have public records laws, that there are so many things that are accessible to the public that the press gets to, or that we request really on your behalf, and you can also do it as public records, um, to try to look into things and shine a light on things that um, we're all allowed to see. It's just a matter of getting access to it. And if, if any of you follow Lucille on Twitter, um, her pinned tweet is from this email where it says Lucille is persistent, which is great. And that's a lot of what, um, what, the, what the press have to do is persistence. Now, right, the whole game has changed because there's bystander footage for things. Um, so that has shined a light on a lot of law enforcement misconduct, to put it mildly, you know, in some, in some cases. Um, but there's a whole, um, I guess it's been a few years now about body cam footage, about police body cam footage. And Will, like you covered that um, some more in the past, and I know that came up um, when I was covering Durham. What, what should people know about where, where that stands and, and how things came to be with all that? Yeah, sure. So we changed our laws on body cams here in North Carolina a few years ago. Um, before, it had just really been kind of piecemeal. It was up to individual agencies to determine, you know, like, 
what are going to be their rules for, uh, you know, showing the public body cam footage or things like that. Um, the new law says that it, body cam footage is not public record, but it can be showed in certain circumstances. And there's like different levels of, you know, so like the, if officials think that it's important to counter a narrative, say, you know, someone says, oh, you know, the, the police shot this unarmed man, but the police say, no, actually he had a gun. They can, you know, show the body cam footage that would prove that. But it also, kind, you know, so it, it's able to help the police in some circumstances. Um, it also, however, doesn't always help the families. You know, it doesn't require the police to show body cam footage if it, for instance, contradicts the official narrative of what happened. Um, so there's been some criticism around that. People think it kind of helps the, the police maybe, you know, cover up some circumstances. But we have seen instances where body cam footage has come out that hasn't necessarily been good for the, the, the official case. So it's been kind of a mixed bag there. Um, and we've only really had a statewide law on this for just a couple of years so far. So there haven't been really a ton of cases to, you know, to build trends to say like, okay, is this being released at a decent rate? Is it kind of being held up and hidden? It's still probably a little too soon to say. I will say, going back to what Danielle was talking about with the, the, the Neville case in Winston-Salem, it's pretty shocking, I would say, to a lot of people that anyone is being charged in this case, let alone multiple people. Uh, we had a, a case here you know, just a few years ago that the, the News and Observer wrote about down in Harnett County. Um, a man named Brandon Bethea was killed at the, at the Harnett County by deputies there. Uh, he was an inmate. And the official story was that he had gotten in a fight with a detention officer. The detention officer tased him and, um, you know, they called for help. And, you know, uh, Mr. Bethea was alert and conscious until help arrived and then died. And his death was just unavoidable. Um, but then we got the video of what happened and none of that was true. Um, he was just standing in a cell and officer just, kind of walked in unprovoked, tased him in the chest, I think two or three different times. Um, and then the officers just kind of stood around for 20 minutes, watched him die before calling a nurse. And in that case, no one was fired. No one was charged. Uh, the county did eventually settle with his family for a pretty large sum of money. I think it was over $300,000. But, you know, just in terms of actually, you know, people being held accountable for his death, that didn't happen. I mean, that was 2016 when that video came out and we reported on it and they decided not to charge anyone. Um, you know, that's not ancient history. So, you know, for, for charges in a, in a death and obviously, you know, no one has been convicted. People are innocent until proven guilty here, but you know, for even just to get to the stage where there are charges, there are accusations. Um, that's a pretty quick change. And obviously a lot of these things are, you know, different County by County in North Carolina. But, you know, I, I just think that's, worth noting that, you know, we, we have had video in the past and it hasn't really led to anything, but it seems like now that's maybe different. I know that I've written some where we've had to like go to go to court to get video, police video, and some of it ends up, you know, the officers uh, with their official story is on what happened gives, you know, confirms it and, and vindicates them in some ways. And then of course there's, there's the opposite too. Colin, what have you seen, and and Julian too? If you guys want to weigh in here on on just um, your perspective on on just video between both what is the authorities and us getting versus 
um, when it's from the public and how we use and how really, you know, people don't need us necessarily, right, to um, get those videos out there to to show what's what's going on. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, uh, accessible to anybody, but the question is, do you have the ability to hire an attorney and file a petition and get the court to do it? Um, do you know the records laws in and out? Do you know all the idiosyncrasies of, of how these laws work? Um, you know, it's, I think it's just sort of the value of media and that is that we, we, we do this for a living. So we, we've got the resources to do this, but you know, if you're just a guy who's upset about an individual incident and you're out protesting, the odds that you'll be able to figure out the system are pretty slim. Yeah. And, and I think on the other side of the coin, and, and this might be, you know, kind of obvious, but um, you know, when you have bystander footage, which is much more accessible now through social media platforms and, and you have a platform that you can elevate those videos uh, without having to go through, you know, a traditional media outlet like you used to, uh, it, it does allow for, I think, a lot of, um, I don't know, different kinds of activism and different kinds of ways of getting that video out there and making a change in the case. And that's something we've seen a lot this year, but also in recent years of um, people posting videos to Twitter that then go on to reach thousands and thousands of people and actually create actual change. So. You know, I, I think it's interesting, this whole discussion on video um, and kind of the official video and the official ways and means of getting records, but then also the way that kind of individual people can now affect that too, uh, provided that they get the kind of attention and, uh, and reach that they need to. Yeah, I think we definitely know a lot more about everything that we did even like a month ago, years ago. So we're, um, next we'll have headliner of the week. Before we take a break, let's look at last week's winner. Oh, it's mine. Um, actually, it wasn't last week. It was Monday. We did it earlier this week. But um, I mean, who wouldn't want to vote for Bojangles as headliner of the week? So um, that means I'll sit out. So we'll be back uh, in a second with headliner of the week. All right, we're back with headliner of the week. And because let's see, as you all know, Twitter lets us have four poll questions and there are more of us than that. <laughs> so, so I'm not the only one that'll sit off this week. It'll also be our second place finisher, public records protest headliner, which was Danielle. So that leaves Will, Julian, Lucille, and Colin. Uh, give us your headliners. So my headliner of the week is going to be a surprise governor veto. Uh, I don't think everyone thought it was a surprise, but I think a lot of people thought it was a surprise, including me. Um, the governor's veto of Senate Bill 168 uh, is going to be my headliner of the week. And I wrote a story that published this morning about the backstory on that, if you want to read it. I'm going to go with a really quirky moment from this week's uh, two-day legislative session. I'm picking bare teeth for my headliner. Uh, this was a obscure thing that popped up in a technical corrections bill in the House and got some uh, uh, interesting debate on a lot of confusion on the floor about what on earth it was about because it was basically saying that if you're a hunter and you kill a bear, you're going to be required to get the bear's tooth out and mail it into the government so they can do some research. Um, apparently, you're already encouraged to do so, uh, but it's not mandatory. You just get a free hat that says something about bears um, on it. Um, but if this bill passes, uh, this will be a rule for bear hunting. Um, and apparently, they're trying to get more information about the state's bear population. But uh, for derailing the legislative debate to the subject of bear teeth, uh, that's my pick this week. All right, this is Will. I'll jump in next. Um, my headliner is going to be campaign finance records. Um, today, Friday the 10th, is the deadline for the uh, Q2 campaign finance records to be dropped, which I know everyone has been anxiously looking forward to. Um, 
But we already know uh, some of the numbers because some Democratic politicians uh, have been dropping theirs early. Uh, they have been very excited to tell everybody how much money they raised, how many records they broke. Um, Republican politicians haven't been dropping their numbers early, so we haven't been able to compare the numbers yet. Um, but we should be able to start doing that a little bit later today and then next week. So everyone should be on the lookout for stories about that. Um, but you saw, you know, several uh, Democratic politicians, uh, including Josh Stein and Cal Cunningham, in pretty high profile races saying that they have broken records in their fundraising. Roy Cooper is about $5 million ahead of where he was at this point in 2016. So Democrats are feeling very good about um, their financial standing going into the second half of 2020 as we have big elections coming up. And for my headliner of the week, I'm going to go with uh, Jim Loopholes. So that's something you might have seen this week and honestly in weeks before as well. But as you mostly uh, probably know, gyms right now are shuttered as part of uh, Governor Cooper's executive order and, and they will uh, remain closed and, and he has vetoed bills to reopen them, to allow them to reopen. Um, but a lot of gyms have, have used a loophole that they can uh, reopen for people who were um, who, who have been prescribed exercise by a doctor. And they found that with the American with Disabilities Act, uh, you know, no one is required to disclose any medical uh, information to the people there. And so they're able to reopen the gym. Um, and, and you can see if you're like driving around that there are these grand opening signs and it's technically just for people who are, you know, with there on doctor's orders, but there's no reason or legal way for them to ask, they say, which the uh, governor's administration has disagreed with. So we can expect a, a kind of legal dispute on that. All right. So thanks, everybody. You can vote in our uh, Under the Dome Twitter poll at, at Under the Dome, where we tweet out Domecast each week. So I'm Don Vaughn for Colin Campbell, Lucille Sherman, Daniel Battaglia, Julian Shanbero, and Will Doran. We'll catch you next time. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.